It can also be a destructive thing. It can help produce green, luscious fruit, or it can hurt and actually hinder the fruit or kill. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what might God's fertilizer, as we're transitioning from the agricultural metaphor now into a different metaphor, what might God's fertilizer be that helps us produce more fruit? And how can we ensure that it helps and doesn't hurt? We don't want to wake up one morning to a lawn that has streaks of brown or dead grass. How do we do this? Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start with the first three verses and then move over to verse 11. And we'll camp out in that one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on who, church? Thank you, Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I did say our goal, and it's clear from this text as well as the parable of the four soils, our goal is to produce fruit. Now, what happened in the soil uh, where, there, there was, where there was rocky ground? It actually says, because there was no root, though the seed had germinated, again, be careful, that is not analogous to being born again. Jesus does not have that in view here. It just simply says that he believes for a while and falls away. He, it, it's, it's as if fertilizer was poured on this plant too much and it burned out. Now, we do know that the roots weren't deep enough. It did not receive proper nutrition um, to keep with my metaphor, the fertilizer, though it's as if there was too much fertilizer and it burned out. It lasted for only a while. And so we realize that in this particular instance, that with the rocky ground, there was no genuine faith. When it says it believes for a while, this is contrasted with the good soil that believes, retains it, perseveres, and produces fruit. And that is the key. It is, Im <coughs> excuse me, it is impossible for a truly born-again Christian not to produce fruit. Now, we can stagnate, but we will produce fruit. That is, by nature, who we are. And Jesus says a good tree will produce good fruit. Now, let me just walk you through this, but it is easy for us, as we may have grown up in a church or we hear the gospel, not 
thoroughly taught in the scriptures, we can latch on to this concept of faith is simply holding on to the facts of the gospel. Now, this is important. We need to grasp the truth of the gospel. We need to grasp the facts, who Jesus is, what he accomplished. James chapter 2 tells us that it is good to believe that there is one God, but guess what? The devil believes there's one God, and he shudders, he trembles, because he knows what awaits him. He does not produce fruit, but guess what? He does believe. Did you catch that? The devil believes. He believes Jesus is the son of God. He's actually in the process of trying to overthrow him. But he believes that Jesus is the son of God. He believes that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. The devil believed that Jesus rose from the dead. By death, he was hoping, though, to uh, keep that from happening. But my Bible tells me in Acts 2 that death could not hold him down. Jesus rose from the dead, thereby assuring, evidencing, proving that he indeed was the Son of God. The devil could not keep that from happening. The devil believes all of what I just told you. There's another thing that we need to... Grasp a hold. Well, we can believe, excuse me, we can believe that there is one God. We can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for the sins of the world. But that does not make us on Jesus' team. Let me just use an illustration here because we need to understand faith to understand what we're going to get at today. Faith. What is it? It is ascertaining and apprehending truth, fact. But it's more than this. If I were studying my enemy in battle, and I would find out this general's background, his, his battle strategies, and find out you know, what is his goal. His, his goal actually, as I have discovered, is world domination. This is his goal. But because I know all of this, does that make me on his side? Obviously not. My allegiance is actually opposed to him. So though I believe these things about him, I by no means am on his side. Now we're beginning to get at what faith is. Because faith is making a choice. Faith is not passive. It is absolutely active. And it is making that choice to follow God. To be on his team, to swear my allegiance to the king. And I want to ask you, what team, what side are you on? The message today is not just about faith, but is about persevering in our faith. And we're going to need to understand this because it's as we persevere in this thing called faith that we're still going to need to unwrap more of. It is then, as we persevere, that we will produce fruit. Our goal is to produce fruit. And I want to tell you this right now. Every single one of you sitting here who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who truly has faith in Jesus, you have a bullseye on your back, and the devil's goal is to take you down. He wants to specifically attack your faith. He wants to ruin your faith. And if he cannot ruin your faith, he at least wants to neutralize it so that you no longer are growing. 
updates as you grow in this thing called faith that we're going to look at more and unwrap. When we grow in that, that's when we are producing this fruit. That is, at the, at the judgment day, what God will open his books and will look for. He is not just looking for, uh, did you know all the facts in the Bible? Well, that is only the first step in faith. When we look at this verse 11, it says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, produces a harvest, that's the word karpos, fruit or crop, harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, right here is where Paul does at least in our present day, if you, if you if we have, you know, Kate is an English, has been an English teacher in the past. Some of you majored in English. Mixing your metaphors is a no-no. That's today. Back then, for, for God, through, through the author of Hebrews, to mix their metaphors, okay, that's all right. So we have the agricultural metaphor and the, the fruit, the harvest, and now he's switching metaphors here, and he's using this word trained. This is an interesting word. This word trained, it comes from the Greek word, let me get it right here, gumnazo. That's the verb. The noun gymnasia is, we get the word gymnasium. Now do you see what he's, see, we, tr we translate this verb trained. He, he's going to gymnize you, if you will. God's goal is to train you. Now, we, we need to look at this a little, a little deeper. He does this through discipline. Now, is it not true that many times when we think of discipline, and yes, this is one of the paddles that we use when we have disciplined our little ones. Um, wow, Jim, you haven't gotten a spanking since when? Wow. But we have, we have these special paddles. In our downstairs bathroom, we would have many of them. You can get them at Lowe's. And we would plant them in all the different bathrooms uh, just in case, you know, so we didn't have to go too far. There was code. When our children disobeyed, we said it's time to go to the bathroom. That meant pow-pow time. That meant it's time to apply the attitude adjustment. Now, I don't know about you, but for some of you, you had a very bad experience growing up. You associate this with anger with severe pain, even hatred, um, not just your parent getting angry, but you getting angry, temper tantrums, after the discipline, hurt. You see, in our fallen state, we may choose to discipline that way. That is not how God calls us to, and that is not how God disciplines. I remember one particular gentleman uh, when his children, when he put his children down at night, and if they started, he would tell, the, you know, when, when you're down, kids, shh, no more talking. If you choose to talk, daddy will have to discipline you. They understood this, so here's what he did. There was a, you opened the door, there was a dresser right there, and he would leave the door cracked just a little bit. When he would hear noise of the kids talking, this is what he would open the door just a little bit and he would reach inside and put the paddle on top of the dresser. And then he would leave. Shh. God's right there. 
they understood the severity of discipline, but he was a good dad, and he disciplined with love and fairness. So this is one concept of discipline. God does this when we as his children sin, and that is actually the context here in verse 7, endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as sons, and he then talks about how fathers trying to extend love to their children, he punishes or disciplines them. So one element of this discipline that we need to talk about this morning is the pow-pow paddle. It's the attitude adjuster that God uses on me. I remember trying to explain to my children, you know, I want you to understand this concept of discipline because when you get older, uh, God's not going to put one of these to your backside. He's going to use a lot of different things that's a, that can be a lot harsher, but God does so to love us. And so when we sin, God disciplines or he punishes us. But there's another element to this concept of discipline that I want us, us to see. And that is that God uses uh, these things, these trials and difficulties in our life to exercise us, to train us. And it is also that concept of discipline that he has here. And that is in this idea of training. I picked up the wrong thing. Uh, you know, you can have you know barbells like this, or it's a fifteen pounder. This one is a five pounder. This one's a three pounder. And God uses all different types of weights, if you will, trials of different weights, if you will, to help you exercise, to build muscle, to strengthen you. Now, maybe you never realized this before. Your your attitude towards uh, difficulties in life is uh, very, very intense. You hate them, and you, you, you totally do not, in fact, you pray against hardships, and I'm not opposed to that, but we, we fail to see that these hardships can build us and train us. But you know what? Just like that fertilizer, these types of disciplines, the exercising with the concept of the gymnasium or the discipline in a little bathroom, it's like this fertilizer. And if we're not careful, these things can end up hurting us. Not to God, not God's fault, ours, they can end up hurting us rather than helping us. I mean, wouldn't you want to go through life in such a way that God is actually using this fertilizer, using these training methods, discipline or punishment and training, exercising, to build up your faith whereby you might be able to persevere and produce much fruit. But God is going to use these two elements of discipline in our lives, temptation, and he may cause us to, to fall into sin, and he brings punishment, or trials of many kinds that builds our faith. These trials then that he then uses to strengthen, to exercise us. God uses both of these elements of discipline in our lives to test our faith to prove our faith, to strengthen our faith. Jesus himself was the perfect example of persevering, of the right attitude. You know, it's, it's easy 
as these trials come, that we, like on the rocky ground, when the trials came, they believed for a while and then fell away. And I know for me, before I truly gave my heart to Christ, that was me. That was totally me. I, 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 would, I, I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was 8, when I was 10, when I was 12. And finally, I, I got it. I, I, it's like the, this understanding, this is what it means to place my faith in Jesus. And at 14, God did something marvelous in my life. And that's when I truly believed. And as I said, faith is more than just an apprehension of the facts. Do you remember in the movie Aladdin? And the princess, what, Princess Jasmine, is that her name? And she's wandering outside the confines of the palace and such and investigating the city. And she meets up with Aladdin. And, and I haven't seen the movie for quite some time. But as, as they are, are they're running from, uh, I'm sorry, did you see did he steal some food or something? Like he's running and he, he's about to escape. And he reaches out to her with his hand and he says, do you trust me? And you're about to take a leap, and I guess they land on an awning or something like this. But he reaches out the hand, and he says, do you trust me? Now, with that concept, we're about to take another step into understanding what this idea of faith is. First, it is getting the facts. Next, it is trusting or relying upon God. For Jasmine, Princess Jasmine... To grasp a hold of his hand, yes, that was an element of faith or trusting in him. Does he really know an escape route? Is he skilled? Is he about to take me to a leap of death or safety? Does he know enough? Does he, is he skilled enough? But what about his character? Maybe... He wants to take me for ransom. Can I trust his character? So trust has to do with both the ability and the character. And God, the one that we are seeking to trust, he is fully capable. And he definitely knows the way out of your circumstance. But he is also completely filled with character and love beyond measure, and he is fully trustworthy. And so because of this, now this second facet of faith, we can trust him. Let me look at, let's look at just one other aspect of faith, because understand, this is what's under the microscope. This is what Satan is wanting to attack in your life. So he will attack the truth in your life. He will attack your ability to rely on or trust in God. And thirdly, faith is relational. Faith is relational. Faith pursues God. Faith pursues Jesus. And this is why the author says, fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Because he is the one that we're pursuing. Fix your eyes on him. He is not just the example. He is God himself that we worship and that we are intimately intertwined with. This is this third element of faith. We don't just apprehend the facts. We don't just 
rely upon him. We are falling in love with him, even as a young man pursues a young lady. It's not that he's stalking her, okay? It's that he has affection for her and longs to be in relationship with her. Intimate relationship with her. Maybe one day even getting married. But we are talking about relationship here. And this, that, that, that's why at the heart of love is this concept of trust. Just thinking of 13. So these three elements of faith, these facets, uh, and I tried to come up with a T word for each one, and I did my best here, church, just to, just to help you remember them. Truth, trust, and bear with me, track. You know, I'm tracking you, okay? I'm pursuing you. I'm following after you. It's relational in nature. Satan wants to attack these three elements of your faith, and he were, we are being called upon to persevere, to endure these hardships as sons and daughters of God. It is... It can be very difficult to persevere. And let me ask you this. How, how does God test or refine our faith? You see, the, the devil wants to undermine this in our lives. Obviously, God wants to strengthen it. How does God refine our faith? If you were to turn to James chapter 1, go there with me. Keep your fingers here in James chapter 1, a, a well-known passage. M many of you might even be able to quote this. It says, consider it pure joy, chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance this concept of trial the verb here in the greek is terazo it doesn't just mean to test us as it does here trial but it's used later in this very same chapter and translated tests you see Difficulty can either test us or they can tempt us. So if they test us, then this plays more to this idea of the lifting of the weights, exercising us. Trials happen in our lives, but depending on how I respond to them, I have the opportunity to build muscle or to get more and more flabby. These trials will come my way, and I've got to make a choice. How am I going to respond to them? So they exercise us. And so it plays into this athletics metaphor. The temptations, same verb translated tempt. Now, it, it tests us as well. And the choice is, do we, do we sin? And our Heavenly Father has has placed the, the paddle right there in the dresser. Okay. 
How does Michael respond to you? How do you respond in the face of trial, in the face of temptation? See, this is really what we're talking about, this, this refining, this peirazzo, this testing, this tempting. God allows these things in our life, Satan meaning them for evil, God meaning them for good. And as we sift through this, they sift us, they sift our faith. How do we respond? We can either choose to be bitter or better, if you will. They can produce a harvest of righteousness or they can cause our hearts to turn away from God. I shared this story about my friend Frank at Ray Lumber years ago. And Frank chose to become bitter chose to go back to the alcohol. He was filled with rage. He kept a gun next to his recliner, hoping that that man who had hurt him would knock on the door and he would say, come in, and he would shoot him dead. Rage, bitterness, hatred, and it controlled his life. He allowed those things to Now, I'm talking about something that's deep and it's difficult, church. When things happen in your life and they stir you up emotionally and you're wondering, God, where are you in this? There is that temptation to, re to, to feel rejected by God. But he is encouraging us to embrace this. You know, it's easy when... Guys, we come home from work, our wives ask us, so how is your day? I mean, how do you evaluate that? Did you have a good day? Did you have a bad day? Think of this with me. You're at work. Your boss, whom you love, who has poured into you, he's a Christian man, elderly Christian man. He, he has trained you. He has shown you secrets about how to become excellent at what you're doing. And he's, an, he's the best boss that you have ever had. He asks you not just, so how are you doing today? But he sits down at lunch with you and says, tell me, how are you doing today? Tell me about, and he mentions the name of his wife and their three children by name. He knows you. And this boss ends up leaving the workplace, going to another company. And it impacts you. And you're just, wow, God, he was the very reason why I was in this company. But something else is beginning to eat at you because you realize with him gone, now the CEO is going to make a choice and he's going to probably downsize your department. And you're just waiting for that phone to ring. What if it's here? What if they get rid of me? The phone rings. The CEO. Mike, hey, I need you to drop what you're doing right now, and I need you to come to my office. Forget the past. You drop what you're doing. You go into the office. He's behind his desk. He's sitting across from you, and you are still the same. 
How's your day going? Terrible. Terrible. I lost this, the best boss I've ever had, and I'm about to get fired. And the boss looks over to you and he says, I know that Joe has decided to move on to another company. I understand the reasons for this, but I asked him for a recommendation to take his place, and your name came up, and I'd like to offer you a promotion. Now, how's your day going? <laughs> when you come home at the end of your day with this huge grin on your face, and your wife asks you, so how was your day? How do you respond? It was great. It was terrible, but it was great. Okay? I mean, it, it hurt. But you see, in the midst of this hurt and this pain of losing this man that poured, literally poured his life into you for over 25 years, or 20 years, and, and now he just got a promotion. God worked through that. And in the moment in which you are sitting at your desk and you discover the news that your boss left, what is going on in your head right now? And it is right there that this trial is tested. Can you trust God? Gather the facts about him. Is he a God that betrays his children? He's not. Is he a God that pursues you even when you're trying to keep him at an arm's length? Have you ever been into, uh, have you ever been going through a, a, a bad day and your spouse comes to you and says, hey, how'd your day go? And you're saying, I don't want to talk about it. And they pursue you. No, no, no. Let's just sit down. Talk to me. Tell me about how did your day go? And eventually, reluctantly, you begin to share and you get this load off your chest and your spouse prays for you. That is how God pursues you. Because sometimes he pursues you when you don't want him to. And you want to do this, and he wants to do this. And he pursues you. God, at this very moment, in this illustration, is testing your life. How are you going to respond? God is still who he is. But if you listen long enough to the lies of the devil, he's going to undermine the truth that you know about God with these lies. Can you trust him? Second element of faith. Can, is he still reliable? Has God in any way changed? If you trust him, do you really believe that it's going to work out for your good in the end? Do you really believe this? Tell you what, the enemy is going to try and bring things up into your mind to erode that element of trust and for you to come to the conclusion. But I do remember one time, I think, you know what, instead of talking about that one time that you really didn't understand, how about if you talk about the dozen times in which God did come through for you and he showed up and it did work out. Well, that is not what the devil wants you to focus on at that moment. And at that moment, you're thinking about this one little thing, and you're starting to get filled with fear. God is sifting you. God is helping you grow in your faith to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. 
and we're struggling here. And at that last step, the, the, the third facet of faith, God wants you in that moment of trial to fall before him and say, God, I trust you because I love you and you love me. And that relationship will not be broken. And there is this sense of determination that rises up that causes you to persevere. So all three of these elements of faith, the devil wants to test you. He wants to undermine you. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to, if switching metaphors here, he wants to fertilize the fertilizer to burn. And it is, the ball is in your court. It's in our court. How am I going to respond to him? Am I going to push through him? Or am I going to do this? And I've known people who have done this and done this and done this over and over, keeping God at an arm's length. And a coldness begins to settle in their heart. And God becomes an expression, a superlative, a, a word to use when you're angry. And it's not perseverance. And there is a distance that has grown because you have been faithful. Joseph had this opportunity as his faith was being tried to either press into God or to do this and keep God at an arm's length and to say, you know what, God? I'm not going to trust you and I'm not going to follow you. You may, you may remember the story. Turn to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. That's where I'm going to go. I want to give just a bit of a background, and then we're going to wrap things up. Joseph was a young man, late teens, maybe about 17 years of age, and he has three dreams, all of which filled him with this sense of pride in which the, the, the stars and the sun and the moon bowed down to him, the bales of wheat bowed down to him. And he begins to, wow, these are my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad. They're going to bow down to me one day. And he gets kind of cocky about this. And he starts saying, brothers, you got to hear what, what dream God gave me. You all are going to bow down to me. That didn't go over real well with his brothers. Mom, dad, I, I, I got to tell you my dreams. I mean, I'm your boy. And, and listen to this dream that God gave me. Wow, how do you think this is going to, dad, tell me, how do you, what kind of greatness do you think God's called me to? This is amazing. And he was filled with pr pride and cockiness, and his father warned him. And what happened is his brothers betrayed them. They were filled with jealousy and anger and, and animosity, really, towards their brothers. And they sold him as a slave. Midianites and Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt, and they in turn sold him as a slave in Egypt. And there he is. And God is using this immense trial in his life to refine his faith. And I'm sure there's an element of this in Joseph's life and an element of this. Except this is a 15-pound weight and God was probably using a 50 to 100-pound weight. At least Joseph felt that way at times. He's sold as a slave. He begins to excel in Potiphar's house, and then he's falsely accused 
And where does he go? Is he promoted? Does he get maybe a side promotion to another uh, official? No, he gets thrown into jail, falsely accused. Well, now it's a hundred pound weight. Oh, God, really? I mean, you want me to lift this? You want me to carry on? And he had the choice to become bitter or better. We all have that choice. He made the right choice. He was in prison for over two years, falsely accused. But he chose to make the best best of this situation. He served what I'll call the warden. And he got promoted. And he became the most trusted man in the prison. And there was a way out that he could have gotten out of prison much sooner. God closed the door. Wow. How about that? God gave a man a dream. He interpreted it. Told the king the dream. No. uh, uh, Forgot to tell the king the dream. And he got promoted. Fulfilled the dream. Sometime later, Israel told the king. And the king realized, Pharaoh, realized, this guy interprets dreams? I just had one. You remember? Seven lean cows devoured seven fat cows. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. How are we going to handle this? And Joseph became God's man. From the age of 17, he was now in his 30s. And all the trials and the temptations bearing down on his face. And he refused. He refused to confuse the facts with lies. He refused to say, God, you're not trustworthy. And he refused to do this with God. And he pressed in and he pursued midst of this disciplined time in Joseph's life, God then promoted him to second highest rank in the army. Right now, and I know uh, I'm going to encourage you if you've not seen the documentary, I believe it's called Patterns of Evidence, and they may well have found Joseph's house, and I'll let you conclude on your own with the facts that are given, but it is amazing. This particular house that they have found, apparently a Hebrew lived there, but he was a very high-ranking official, probably second in command. So they're finding evidence of this already, but it's only because Joseph allowed God to refine his heart and to persevere And to keep his eyes focused on God himself and not on his circumstances that screamed, I don't trust you, God. I can't trust you, God. Why pursue him? Pursue your own goals. You have to live for yourself. Many of us, that's where we end up. Joseph chose not to. When his brothers, during the famine, when his brothers came, he provided for them and eventually said, hey, come on to Egypt, 
and they were given an entire region of Goshen. Actually, a very lush land. And God preserved the land. And when his father died, his brothers were wondering, as they're now living in the land of Egypt, is Joseph now going to hold a grudge and now the dad's grudge will die? Because look what we're doing. And as his brothers confess their fear, Joseph, Joseph cries. And he says, I would never do that to you. Don't you understand? And he shares this plan. Verse 19, don't be afraid. You're not in the place of God. Look at this plan to get punishment from God. And he says, you, verse 20, you intended to harm me. Accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Foolish. And I would say to you that God is in the process, in the testing, the disciplining of your in your life through trials and through temptations, refining your faith. And as you are finding a way to persevere, to produce fruit, the question is, how are you doing in the midst of this temptation, in the midst of this trial? I can remember for myself, this passage became very near and dear to me. I had a goal. We all have various goals in our lives. I had a goal. My goal was, I believe, to be a noble goal. God, I believe you want me to pastor full-time. I, ha- I pastor, and I have a business, and I work full-time with this business. So here's my plan, God. I'm going to try and grow the company, and I have a certain number of trucks. I get those certain number of trucks on the road, crunching the numbers. I should be able to step back and just oversee the business, and I'll be able to give full-time to the church. And God, I think that's a great goal. Would you bless my goal? And God looked down with a smile on his face, patted me on the back, and he says, but Mike, that's not my goal. And here's how he said that to me. 2007, the housing market in Orlando crashed. It affected the, uh, and, and it wasn't just Orlando, nationally. And the automotive industry was highly impacted. GM and Chrysler went to the government on their knees, asking for money. Ford decided not to. Um, I lost employees. The business downscaled, and we were financially gone. And I began to ask God, this is the exact opposite. We were moving in this direction, and this is the exact opposite of what I've been praying for. What are you doing? And, and I, there was just a state of confusion, and, and I just laid it before God. And I was being tested. Is, is God really reliable? Is he concerned about me? I am one in how many billion people on planet Earth. And God, do you see my teeny tiny supposed insignificant situation here? And do you even care about it? I mean, I love you. I love people. I want to pastor. And I'd really rather do that than this business. But God... Where are you here? I had this perfect plan, and you've chosen not to bless it. And I can remember just crying out to God, 
and fasting. And I, I, I called a leaders meeting after a service one, we were meeting Saturday nights, and I said, guys, here's the situation. And I either have to find another job and scale back on my pastoring or not pastor at all uh, to be able to support my family. And I need your input. Here's where our church finances are. And guys like Mike Jeffrey and Mayor Evans and Rodeo Wood, they said, you know what, Pastor Mike, I really think the church, in view of the finances and your needs, the church needs to step up and assist the following. Because I was getting frustrated. I was getting really frustrated, but purposely. And they said, we need to step out in faith and we need to do this. Over the years, the church has done that three times in which we were pressing up against and actually stepping over our budget. And as a businessman, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't like doing that. And that is where the church led us. It's, it's their situation. As soon as we did that, as soon as we did it, I was figuring we're going to be about $500 in the red every month. You know what happened? We were $500 in the black every month. And the finances increased. There was a, later on in that year, I remember as we were, we were kind of stepping into the red a little bit, God blessed us with a large gift for some of that project. And God, every time that we had done that, and I can feel that pressure, financial pressure, just saying, okay, God, what do we do now? God always came through, always provided for my family, for the church, however it was. So here's my question. I'm going to take hold of this question. How are you doing perseverance and running the race? Because if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says this, you will not grow weary and be exhausted. You will persevere. God will strengthen you. And you will produce a harvest. I don't know about you. That's where, that's where I want to be. That is, that is the stuff of life. And I've seen people, they're, even those who claim to be Christians, and their lives have been shipwrecked because of trials and temptations came their way. And guess what? And they ran for it. They were like Jonah. Oh, that's what you want me to do? And head in the opposite direction. Well, praise God, Jonah came to a conviction, repented, and actually did God's will, and God mightily blessed. This is the nature of the God we serve, church. He is so faithful. He is so good. His heart is tender like a father's to his sons. That's a context here in the chapter. And he will bring discipline, but his heart is so on your side. He has your, he has your back. He is in your corner as you are fighting and struggling against these trials. And God speaks it to you and he says, all of this is the devil is trying to work against you to bring you down. Are you choosing to trust where you are? Are you 
about to have communion right now. If we could take a light, if we could just right now take a moment and reflect on what God's word is, is sharing with us. Can we do that? Father, your word is truth. We struggle with it. We have to confess there are times in which the trials we go through that there's just no way that we can see good in it. But today, God, we trust you. It doesn't matter what I see, because I choose to walk by faith, not sight. I am choosing to trust you today. I am choosing to allow you to refine me. Give me that weight, God. Exercise me. Strengthen me. I will take it on. I will submit to you purify me, cleanse me, do whatever you need to do in me, God, to make me more like your son, Jesus. That is all that I care about. I don't care about the riches of this world or fame or promotions. These can be nice, but God, that is not my goal. Jesus, you are. And I'm asking you, Lord, do what you need to through me. Just let that resonate within your spirit. Say it out loud if you need to. God, you are good. And there is no one like you. God, you are good. And there is no one like you. I trust you. I pursue you, God. I love you. Father, I, I ask you, even as Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, as we now celebrate this Lord's Supper, communion, we recognize that the bread is symbolic of, of your body that's broken for me, it was broken for me on the cross. You, you endured physically for me this pain and you endured spiritually your blood being poured out for the forgiveness of my sins. I was your enemy, God. I was opposed to you. You sought dominion in my life. And I rejected that. Pursued us. You loved us. You extended grace to us. And I ask you, Father, 
that as we now partake of this communion, remind us of that cost and that pursuit that you had with us and that continues on to today. And that night in which Jesus was betrayed, the Bible says that he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And Father, I ask that you would bless this bread that would represent to us the body of Christ broken for us, and by it we have redemption. By it we have salvation. By it, the, by this uh, Christ's body, the bread of life, we have life. And I want to thank you, God, that you have transitioned us from death to life through Christ. Jesus, your body was broken for us. Bless it now. blood of the new covenant in my mind for the forgiveness of sins for by his blood that was shed every one of our sins is washed away gone removed not held against you he has actually imparted his righteousness to us that is the love of God so father thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that by his blood he secured for us forgiveness of sins. You hold nothing against us by faith. The guilt and the shame gone. freedom in the blood of Christ Jesus thank you thank you that you loved us this much that you gave of yourself that the joy set before you you endured the cross scorning 